what advice would you have for airlines? Being able to understand sometimes there's so much data, you're paralyzed by the data. Being able to put that into an intelligence system, I would say concentrate on that. Hi, my name is Chris Glass, and this is another episode of The Jump Seat. Welcome to the pod. I have Don Wilson with me. Don, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Excellent. Don, you've come a long way to be here with us. Uh, Can you give me a little bit of an idea about your background and uh, how you got into the industry we love so much? Okay. As long as you promise not to add up all the years, (laughs) uh, I... Got into aviation through flying helicopters for the U.S. Army. So I did that for 20 years uh, during boom time when uh, there weren't any electronic interfaces. I was probably in the last seat-of-the-pants helicopter guys in the 60s and 70s. Uh, Retired from the Army after 20 years. Uh, Did a few years, two tours, as a foreign military sales advisor, Egypt and Morocco. Uh, where we were just connecting, and I'm going to come back with connecting a bit, but we were connecting um, the equipment they were using to their missions that they were trying to under- and try to understand the best way to support right. our foreign military customers. And then uh, one of the problems we had were getting our helicopter engines overhauled in a timely manner in the U.S. So when I retired, I helped open a helicopter engine overhaul company. Wow. Which specialized in the same engines that uh, the Egyptians and the Moroccans were flying. Uh, ran that for, th- did that for three years out of Corpus Christi, Texas. That was a lot of fun. Uh, but um, at the end of that time, my lovely English wife convinced me uh, that I had made a uh, prenuptial agreement to uh, allow the family to live three years in the States and three years in England and then let them decide where we would make our homestead after coming out of the military. Three years of Corpus Christi, three years in England, moved 1992, moved to England, and I've been there for 35, 30 years, 30 years this year. Wow. So, so all over the world. So we, we went to lunch today, and you were telling me about uh, being in uh, Cairo and being in Morocco. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell me a little bit about... Uh, Tell me a little bit about Morocco and uh, Cairo and what it was like to work for the military there. Well, it was an interesting assignment because it was all uh, civilian clothes. Uh, We weren't really there. We were there to help them. And so very low profile, three-man unit in in Cairo and a one-man unit, me, in Morocco. Oh, wow. So I was the sole advisor to the uh, Moroccan Armed Forces National Depot which was where they brought in all the parts that we sold them or donated to them and then um, uh, helped them uh, logistically support the aircraft and, uh, and, and the all equipment, ground equipment as well. Wow. But uh, Egypt in the 80s was, was a, a, a somewhat of a challenge, living challenge. Morocco in the late 80s was uh, heaven. It was just... Uh, <laughs> It was a fantastic, I always say it's one of the best places to um, discover the benefits of Islam, but then uh, not suffer necessarily from it because you can have a lovely glass of wine for dinner. Absolutely. So uh, it was a, and, and Morocco is one of the world's best kept golfing secrets. Really? I didn't yeah. know, you're shocking me there because I didn't know there was good golfing King in of Morocco was an avid golfer. The, 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 the current king's father uh, was an avid golfer. 
he used to bring Billy Casper over for right. a 30-day uh, trip um, and uh, get lessons. And so he built seven Royal Golf Courses. Wow. Uh, and each one of them, beautiful in its own way, seaside course, mountain course, desert course. And, but each one was next to uh, one of his uh, castles. And, uh, so it was uh, very nice. Good scenery, good, good golfing, good scenery. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and I understand that you learned French during your time there. Uh, I, I was taught French. Uh, <laughs> whether I learned French is a different matter, which a lot of people will argue about. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was a necessary requirement for the, for the assignment because uh, my boss didn't speak any English, <laughs> which made it uh, always an interesting uh, event when I had to uh, realize what time I had to be somewhere. Excellent, uh, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, and then uh, from that, that uh, grew us into the next. And then once I got to England, uh, I worked for a company called uh, the Inventory Locator Service. We had customers in, um, in just about every country in the world, and I was the uh, European regional, uh, European Africa and Middle East, the EMEA. Wow. So I traveled extensively through all those uh, countries. And then eventually took over as the uh, vice president of sales for the company, which gave me the world to, uh, to visit. So lots of different customers all needing, and mostly airlines, needing parts. So tell me, tell me a little bit about uh, ILS and, and what their business model was and how they grew to the size that they were. So, you know, uh, we were, uh, I, ILS was the, uh, the e-marketplace before e. So, in fact, the term e-marketplace was, uh, was written up in a uh, Harvard business case study, and ILS was one of the companies they wrote it about. So in the 1980s, early 1980s, before anybody knew really what the internet was, it was here, but we didn't knew, know it. Or be, its power. Or its power, because we didn't have PCs and laptops and you know, all that came to be. Um, so ILS initially through the CETA network and then through uh, uh, other accesses using modems tied to the internet before laptops and PCs, uh, we connected uh, airlines, MROs, military organizations around the world to help them not buy the 500 parts they need next year, but the one part they need tomorrow. So, so kind of that just-in-time sales. Just-in-time, and it was connectivity. Uh, one of the interesting, uh, we used to have a lot of customer uh, meetings to learn more about how we could better uh, support them, and one fellow raised his hand one time and and I said, what do you like the most about ILS? And, uh, and he, he was a, a gentleman from Greece. And he said, I've met my best friends on ILS. Oh, cool. Because he was meeting people around the world, looking for that one part tomorrow, um, who he had never met, didn't know. It actually grew into personal relationships versus uh, business relationships. Which makes everything so much stronger when you're doing business together. It's connectivity. It's yeah. people-to-people connectivity. And, and uh, you know, over a, uh, over a million times uh, a month, that's what ILS did, bring people together. So how many customers worldwide did ILS have uh, back then? Again, I'm going back a few years. Yeah, of course. But uh, uh, I think probably as I was leaving, we had about 7,000 uh, companies, uh, wow. entities, corporate entities, 
which was about 30,000 people because a, a company could have a, a single access, uh, one man, one part, uh, one, one access, or uh, British Airways could have uh, 40 accesses on their site. Yeah. Um, U.S. military in a place like uh, Columbus, Ohio, uh, could have 2,000 IDs, uh, 2,000 accesses wow. searching. Wow. So it varies from the small guys to the big guys to the biggest of the biggest. But all those people were looking for one part. Actually, the average of a single search on ILS was 2.5 parts over a year. So it's not the the big lists. It's it's it really is the AOG aircraft on ground yeah. or in the military MICAP mission incapable part um, that people would be looking for because they had their normal sources of supply. I used to think that we were uh, as maybe it's a good uh, uh, Canadian uh, uh, idea. We were the Yeti of the aircraft industry. We were the missing link. The missing link. <laughs> yeah. That, that, so uh, I've got a plane stranded somewhere and I need something relatively quickly mm -hmm. uh, and I don't, I can't source it I, or I don't have time to source it from my regular right. channels. For uh, one of my presentations I used to do ad nauseum, people would get sick hearing it, was um, um, uh, for the want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For the want of the shoe, the horse was lost, the soldier was lost, the war was lost. And uh, on any given day, ILS had about 70,000 different nails right. as, a, as a name of a part on the system. Uh, but it was that. It's, it's not, you know, it, it is the one part to keep the plane flying. And it could be as small as a, uh, a chip detector on a 747 in New York, which uh, was an actual example of Virgin Atlantic. Uh, had a chip detector go bad. Had one in Heathrow, would have taken you know a day and a half to quality system to get right. that part approved and out. And there was a person in uh, just outside of uh, Kennedy Airport that had uh, a stock of them and could supply the part. But they had to find that person and know it, and that's what ILS did. So it was more of of connecting connecting the right person with the right part at the right time. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So the the other side of that is I, I know um, the answer to some of the just-in-time problems would be to hold uh, massive amounts of inventory on stock. And I, and I know the airline I came from, that was a problem. You had a, a lot of parts that weren't on planes making you money. Mm -hmm. uh, so being able to get the right part saves money mm -hmm. in that way. So can you expand on that a little bit, on, no. on how airlines are able to use that kind of... Uh, Connectivity as yep. your word in order to save yep. costs. Absolutely, and and within the marketplace of all these seven thousand companies, twenty six, twenty seven thousand people, um, you could have a private marketplace. So, for example, all the ATR operators could have uh, show their ATR surplus stock. They don't want to show it to the marketplace worldwide. They may not want to show it to brokers or yeah. people that are just buying the part to stock. They only want to show it to the other air, other ATR operators. So you could have an ATR private pool. We had a private pool just for the um, uh, defense uh, U.S. military. They could they could show what parts they had, but they wouldn't show it to the commercial market. Right. Um, so that private marketplace aspect of it was a very popular uh, option. Uh, but the whole concept of ILS started over a kitchen table in Memphis, Tennessee. 
uh, where uh, a fellow named John Williams had an um, avionics repair shop. He was trying to reduce his stock and at the same time to reduce his cost, right. but at the same time improve his Rolodex to, right. to find it because he knew the people who had the part, but he, to call them, are they there? But if you were able to put that information into uh, a database that you could access, and everybody would then trade, and, and the database wouldn't take part in the transaction. So there was no additional cost for that transaction. Um, he asked his sister, who was a programmer at a new small cargo company called FedEx at the time. Small, very small, In yes. 1979, um, <laughs> uh, and said, you're a programmer, could you create something like this? They created it over his kitchen table. Wow. Yeah, and, and the product is alive and well today, all those years later. Now, so what was the big learning that you got from that time, right? Like you spent all that time connecting people, connecting parts, connecting airlines. What was your big takeaway? I would say it's people. People, one, buy, like to deal with people they like, they, they know, and, and there is always that trust factor. If you're just another uh, person on the end of a, you know, a, a faceless uh, person that you're trying to deal with, it, it makes it uh, a more difficult decision to make that part. But if you can bring um, parts, you can bring a, a group of people together with the, with the knowledge that you can then find more out about that part. Um, market intelligence. We also, because we had so many transactions every day, we captured all that data. And because we were a private company at the time, we never threw any of that data away. Right. So we had, you know, by the, uh, by the 2000, 2010, we had 30 years of transaction data that we could share with our customer at the time of his potential purchase to help him understand um, when you're going to need something. Or should I buy this from this location or this location and things right. like that. Right. Yeah. So it, it was the, I think it was the connection of the people with uh, the market intelligence uh, enabling them to uh, pro provide the transaction quickly. Excellent. So you went from the military, hmm. uh, small stop in... Uh, Corpus Christi. Uh, Corpus Christi. And uh, what are you doing now? What am I doing now? So I'm consulting with uh, a lot of uh, ILS customers who now can take advantage of my 20-year, 20 25-year history there and my 20-year history in the, in the military and my three-year history running an MRO and say, uh, how can I help you uh, uh, understand the day-to-day the -day workings of uh, – buying and selling parts because that's the other side of it people sell parts but then which parts do i want to stock to sell right uh which parts should i buy for that um and with with the aviation industry growing and shrinking at the same time what i mean is that now we're through covid people are going to start flying again everybody's going to need more parts on both sides of both military and commercial side right. um but then what do I do with that, uh, with, with companies getting smaller, uh, people buying, you know, different groups of companies and, and bring them into one, one fold? Right. It's, and, com and names changing. I mean, yeah. think of how many 
times the company names change as we go, especially on the the, um, the selling side, the stocking side. Well, it must be a big challenge too, right? Because you have the, I, I won't call them legacy carriers, but I'll call them pre-COVID carriers, if mm. that makes sense. Uh, they're under particular cost challenges because they've had to weather the storm mm. uh, of the two years of the pandemic. And then you have these new operators coming up who are in a much different mode. They don't have the debt. They don't have the baggage of COVID. Mm. So there's two real customers out there, the, the, the ones trying to figure out how to right-size their operation and the other who are growing just for the sake of growth. So is that a challenge you see in, in, in the world you're in? Or? Not, not on the parts side. I think on the aircraft operation side, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, what are the synergies in, in same-type fleets and things like that? You look at the southwests of the world. Right. Uh, one uh, fleet, one, yeah. Yeah. You know, versus others that have a multitude of, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of uh, some of the other operators that have so many different aircraft types. Like your Deltas, Americans, yeah, yeah. even Air Canada here, having multiple different planes. Hmm. Well, I, yeah, I think it's uh, it's an, it's a market that doesn't change, other than it changes through technology. We're getting smarter through technology, and uh, I think that's the the huge benefit of Mr. Williams uh, using his Rolodex. Uh, 40, 50 years ago uh, to today, uh, somebody turning on his computer and uh, punching a few buttons in and uh, getting the response he needs in almost real time. So where do you see the future going? I, I would say that in the future, uh, it's just the ability to transact. So if we think about ILS and some of the other systems that are out there, you can source, you can find, but you don't actually then complete, you turn off your computer or you, you go into another package, uh, whether it be your, your uh, enterprise solution package, your financial package, right. and then you complete the transaction. Doing all of that uh, online uh, safely, securely, is is a big part of where the future is, uh, where it'll grow, because of all the different systems that are coming out now. And, right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just think about the fact of of how often do you write a check anymore? And right. You know, in checkbooks, and and that same thing happens in businesses. You know, how fast can we get the transaction done to get the part we need to get the aircraft flying? We just had a. a we were talking. Uh, offline about this, but we had a, a major uh, service provider in the internet space in Canada fail for the past couple of days, and it left people without uh, transactions, credit card, and uh, Interac, uh, which is big here in Canada, um, and nobody carries cash anymore. Nobody mm. carries uh, checks anymore, so I get that that's kind of where it's going. That's yeah. yeah that, that one-stop shop and, and online and secure and protecting data. That's right. Right. And again, if you're dealing with 7,000 different vendors, possibly, you know, you know 50. And so then how do you securely transact with that one guy that has the parts you need that you may not know? Is there a, a kind of a vetting system to uh, getting on ILS to, to make sure you're not dealing with maybe a, a shadier operator or yeah. something like that? There are. There, there are... Um, uh, there's a quality system in place. 
There's also the ability to use this system. You have to be a uh, an approved uh, 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 company, you know, uh, and so. Uh, but then there's also the other side of that, and you have to be very. It's still caveat emptor with a major stamp that buyer beware and uh, and know who you're dealing with, and that's where I think going forward in the future, secure transactions are something people are going to have to figure out and. And I'm sure they're working on it very carefully right now. Absolutely. Well, with with all the advantages that we have now with technology, that must be coming a long way. Hmm. So what advice would you, I, I know you're in the consulting business, so I'm not going to ask you to give away uh, too much for free, but uh, what advice would you have for airlines right now that are, are struggling with the just-in-time uh, part process and, and making sure they have what they need when they need it? I think it's it's... Under, it's being able to understand the intelligence that you're able to derive from your own systems and using that. And, and sometimes there's so much data you can't... Uh, you're paralyzed uh, by it. You're paralyzed by the data. So being able to have a sensible system to be able to uh, understand the data that you're getting and then being able to put that into uh, a, uh, a, an intelligence system that gives you the right answer right. Uh, is uh, is key. And I would say concentrate on that uh, because there's plenty of systems out there that can find you the information, but then bringing that information together uh, and making it uh, uh, actionable, to use a word, is, right. uh, is I think the key to the future and the key to any company's growth. Excellent. So I have two more questions for you. One, I'm not sure you could really answer, but uh, it kept popping in my head hearing you speak. Uh, with the embargo that's going on in Russia right now and the the inability for Russian carriers to get parts, how do you see those airlines being able to, to operate? Or do you see that just kind of being a house of cards at some point? They'll always find a way. Right, <laughs> and and I think the, the the biggest example of that is to look at some friendly foreign air forces that then became unfriendly. Right, uh, I was actually on assignment uh, before the Shah fell uh, to Iran oh. uh, because we the U.S. Army basically ran their. Uh, uh, did a lot to keep their fleet flying, and it was an all-American fleet, a Bell fleet. Um, we left there, when did the Shaw fell? In the 70s, yeah. Yeah, um, and those aircraft are still flying, uh, in, <laughs> to a greater extent, somehow. So uh, I think that everybody, I think, I think on the, uh, to be serious though, on the, on the Russian side, um, hopefully that'll be over soon, right. and uh, hopefully you'll have a good result, and then people start over again, sort of post-COVID, post-conflict. Right. Uh, post-conflict. Um, Do you see those planes uh, that are kind of like when you put a part in that's not uh, under warranty or not tracked? Or, uh, that no, plane, can that plane still be insured? Those sort of questions start being asked. Yeah. No, there'll be a major retrofit, you know, and, yeah. and inspection process to make sure that the right part gets in to the into the aircraft. So... Especially on the commercial side, yeah. Excellent. I often worry about the military side because you don't have so many of the checks and balances. Right. The same uh, controls aren't there. I, I, uh, the one, I don't know if you've seen um, 
the new Tom Cruise movie. Uh, yeah. But he jumps in an F-15 of some 30 years ago and fires it up, and, in, and the APU starts. Um, that was Hollywood magic. <laughs> uh, that was the one thing that my wife turned to me and said, and did that really happen? Mm, no. <laughs> Hollywood magic, but uh, could with the right inspections in the right maintenance places in place. Right. So my last question, I ask uh, every guest this uh, before uh, we uh, let you go. Uh, with all your experience in the world and with all your travels, uh, I'm trying not to get you in trouble with your family because I know it's probably not London, England. But uh, where's your favorite place to go? Where's your favorite place to travel? If there's one place in the world that I need to go or our listeners need to go, where would that be? I would tell you, but then people would come there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, uh, our family has a, a vacation home uh, on a very beautiful, quiet, seven-mile island with two drawbridges uh, and... Uh, just a, at a 25 mile speed limit. Wow. Okay. Um, and if you could figure out where that was, no, but uh, it's a place called Anna Maria Island in Florida. Anna Maria and, Island. And that to me is, uh, uh, we found it about 10 years ago because British Airways started a uh, nonstop uh, Gatwick, uh, London Gatwick flight where we live um, to Tampa. And so I could get from sometimes rainy, gray, uh, damp London uh, to the Gulf of Mexico right. in just about nine hours it's door to door. That's awesome. Yeah. So Anna Maria Island would be my my place on earth. Great. Well, in about two or three weeks, I'll fly out and I'll come stay on your couch and we, you can show me the drawbridges and we can go from there. Come on down. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely great. Don, thank you so much for spending some time with us here on The Jump Seat. And uh, we're looking forward to our next couple episodes of The Jump Seat, where hopefully we're going to be on the road in merry old England ourselves. So thank you very much, and we'll be uh, back on The Jump Seat soon enough. Thanks for listening to The Jump Seat. Catch the next episode on your favorite streaming platform and follow us on LinkedIn at Flight.